morning. Micah 4, starting in verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him with shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall be shepherd, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads with, within our border. This is the very word of God. If the first Sunday of Advent has hope as its theme, the second Sunday of Advent tells us that it is peace that we are hoping for. Peace, the end of conflict, the end of war, the end of hostility. Those things that make life fearful, burdensome, stressful. We long for peace to be realized in the world. And we celebrate during the Advent season, of course, the coming of Jesus into the world, the incarnation of the Son of God. And we celebrate this because we see in Jesus the arrival of everlasting peace. Well, we sang it this morning, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in its wings. Now, the peace that we celebrate in Jesus is not only the peace that he brings between God and the individual sinner. It is that, of course. Since we have been justified by faith, Paul says in Romans 5.1, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus came to bring peace to the entire world. Real, objective peace. Not just a sense 
of inner peace, however important that may be. Jesus is the Prince of Peace because he has conquered all opposition to his glorious reign. It is true, of course, that not everyone yet believes this. So war and conflict and hostilities continue. But Christians believe this. Yes? You believe this? You believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Prince of Peace? That he has already come and that in coming he has inaugurated his everlasting kingdom of peace? I'm assuming you believe that. All right, I'm having a hard time here. A lot of doubtful expressions on your face. Gonna have to get the tambourine going early here this morning. We Christians must believe, we have to believe this. The prophet said that this is what the arrival of the Messiah would mean. We've already heard the verse this morning. The Feimsters read it to us, but let me read it again, just in case you've forgotten. Isaiah said, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah 9, verse 6. Do you know what the next verse says? Here's what it says. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That is, from the time that the son is born until forever. And the verse ends with this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so he has. And we Christians of all people ought to not just believe it, but to live in that reality. The long-awaited kingdom of everlasting peace has already dawned into this broken world. This is what the prophet Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah, also tells us. Especially here in the second major section of his book, Micah chapters 3 through 5. He speaks in these chapters first about the lack of peace and the cause of it. Second, the promise of peace and the wait for it. And then lastly, the arrival of peace and the influence of it. The lack of peace, the promise of peace, the arrival of peace. First, notice what Micah tells us about the lack of peace and the cause of it. We look here at chapter 3, Micah chapter 3, and notice that this chapter can be broken into three sections addressed to three different groups. Verses 1 to 4 address the heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Verses 5 to 8 address the prophets who lead my people astray. And verses 9 to 12 return to speak again of the heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. In other words, Micah chapter 3 contains words of judgment directed specifically at the elite 
in Israel, calling them to account for failure of their responsibilities. Or in other words, God lays the blame on his own people for the lack of peace. They are the cause of it. How so, Micah? Well, in the first section, verses one to four, these rulers in Israel are asked this question. Is it not for you to know justice? Those who are in charge ought to be the ones who make sure that justice is done. That, of course, should go without saying. But in verses two and three, Micah inveighs against these rulers. They have not been just. They have, notice, hated what is good and right, loved what is wrong and evil. They have, in fact, as the text goes on to describe it, cannibalized the very people that they were called to lead. Now, what could be worse than that? Of course, this is always the temptation of those who are in power, is it not? The temptation to use the power that they've been given not to serve those that they oversee or rule, but to benefit themselves and to abuse those that they are supposed to be leading. The same accusation is at play at the end of chapter 3, when again the rulers of the house of Israel are described, look at it in verse 9, those who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Okay, so what was the failure of Israel's leaders? It was their abuse of power, their failure to carry out justice. And so God proclaims that he will carry out his justice against them. Now, from Micah's words in verse 11, I would like you to look at this verse in particular this morning, Micah 3, 11. In this verse, we discern that the leaders in Israel, basically the nation's judges, priests, and prophets, have all turned to injustice because of their greed, because of their love of money. Here's what it says. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Greed, the love of money, is always near at hand where we find injustice and a lack of peace. Injustice is often fueled by the fact that those in power find that their position provides them with endless opportunities to increase their luxury, all while remaining blind to the poverty of others. Just have a look again at verse 5. This verse is directed specifically at Israel's prophets who lead the people astray, crying out, peace, peace, so long as they have something to eat, but declaring war against those who put nothing into their mouths. When everything's going just fine for me, I tend to say, all is well, peace. And I find myself impatient with those who are unsettled. But boy, don't give me what I expect, what I think I'm owed. Watch out. Just confessing, you're not like that. Praise be to God. 
Now, what do we learn about God and his demands from those prophecies here, these prophecies here in Micah 3? What does God tell us about himself and what he thinks? Well, clearly, you can read Micah, you can read Isaiah, you can read their other contemporary prophet, especially Amos, and here is the point that you cannot escape noticing. God cares about justice. God cares that his world is ordered rightly, fairly, justly for all people. You would have to be blind to the message of the prophets or disconnect them from the reality of their day to come to any other conclusion. And God cares that those, God demands, I should say, that those who are in power to see to it that justice is done in whatever realm that power might be exercised, he demands that those in power not abuse that power for their own benefit or God will hold them accountable. Those who abuse their power will find, according to verse 4, that God will not answer them when they cry out to him. Those who lead God's people astray by proclaiming peace so long as they are provided for will find in the words of verse 7, no answer from God when the sun goes down on them. Now, I know that it would be tempting to turn all of this into a weapon against your favorite political enemy. But let's first acknowledge some of the more obvious points. Again, God cares about justice for all people. As Martin Luther King wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And he had solid biblical support for that statement. The people of God cannot be content just to have their own needs met, not if we believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Prince of Peace. The question is, for us today, do we really believe it? Do we? Look again at verse 11. The leaders of Israel are here accused of abusing their power for their own gain. And yet, notice what it says halfway through the verse. They say, or they claim, that they lean on the Lord, and they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Put together the picture here. The leaders of Israel are pictured as as having an appearance of piety. They are the kinds of people who go around saying things like, well, just trust in the Lord. Everything's going to turn out all right. Everything's going to be okay. But underneath the appearance... The prophet is exposing them for their gross injustice and for their greed. Religious signs and slogans are meaningless if they are not backed up with real moral conviction. Verse 11 teaches us that the presence of God to bring about his peace is contingent on ethical behavior from his people. You cannot just go around saying, well, I trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, and care nothing about the injustices that are around you. 
My concern today for so many who make a religious claim of trusting in God, of believing in Jesus, but then act in ways that seem to indicate that Jesus has not actually achieved the peace that the world is hoping for. Do you really believe that on that first Christmas, the long-awaited Prince of Peace had come? Do you lean upon the Lord? Do you trust in the Lord? If so, we cannot turn away from the realities of injustices that still plague our world. Could it be that underneath our religious claims, we are actually afraid? We don't actually believe. Well, as chapter three comes to an end, the lack of peace due to the injustices of Israel's leaders will be answered, Micah says, by God's judgment carried out on Jerusalem. But strangely, this judgment that we read about in the very last verse of chapter three, this judgment of God is not, catch this, is not simply his giving up on peace. When God comes to bring justice, when God comes to right all wrongs, God is not creating chaos and bringing an end to his promise of peace. He is actually creating peace. God promises peace to his people and then urges them to wait for him to do it. After all, the only peace that can last is the peace that God himself will bring to the world, not the peace that we think we can bring with our own agendas and weapons. Verse 12 of chapter three is, in the words of one commentator, a bombshell. Here's what it says. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem, the city of peace, shall become a heap of ruins. And it all is because of you, Micah says, because Israel's leaders have failed to execute justice and to maintain his peace, God will apparently give up on his city. What happened to Samaria, described back in Micah chapter 1, verse 6, will happen to Jerusalem. But here's the thing. Did history bear this out? Did it come true? Micah himself did not live to see this fulfillment. Because as Micah was prophesying along with Amos, along with Isaiah, we read about this in 2 Chronicles 32, 26. As Micah uttered these words, King Hezekiah humbled himself along with the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that, the scripture says, the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. The averting of God's wrath was then remembered years later, interestingly, when Jeremiah warned of God's coming judgment against Jerusalem. Micah chapter 3 verse 12 is cited in Jeremiah 26, 18 as certain elders of the land reminded the people, Here's what you do when you hear this message. Do what Hezekiah did. He listened to Micah's prophecy and saw the Lord, saw the God of Israel relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against him. So they were saying, respond in the same way. This is long after Micah's time. But they were, of course, ignored 
And as the psalmist would come to lament in Psalm 79, verse 1, the nations came into the land, defiled the temple, and laid Jerusalem in ruins. So it's interesting that Micah made this prophecy, and it was apparently heeded. Jeremiah and others who remembered what had happened remembered the prophecy and urged the people to respond likewise. They, of course, were ignored. And what about in our generation? It remains for each generation of God's people to decide for themselves in their day whether they will listen to God's messengers or not. And again, this is not just a personal matter. The issue at hand here is not whether any one individual will face God's judgment after death or enter into paradise. That's an important question. Of course it is. But when you read a prophet like Micah, the issue that is at hand here is whether the people of God as a whole will enjoy in their day a positive influence on the world or will be indicted as perpetrators of injustice. Either way, friends, there is no threat to God or to his kingdom or to his sovereignty. The first verse, the first, I'm sorry, the first five verses of chapter four promise that in the latter days, when all is said and done, God will in fact be the indisputable king of the world. These are beautiful verses cited as well by Isaiah. And by the way, most commentators today believe that uh, Micah is the original uh, writer of these verses and that Isaiah in Isaiah chapter two borrowed from Micah. Uh, Isaiah 2 is very similar to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. There is a day coming, Micah foresees. Look forward to it. The hope of the faithful is that in the end, when all is said and done, whether in our generation or not, we see the realities of God's kingdom of peace begin to influence our day and our generation, whether we see it or not, in the end, the sovereignty of God, the kingdom of God is not threatened. God will be triumphant. There will be world peace after all, as verse 3 envisions. God will be the judge. God will decide disputes. There will be no more conflict. There will be no more war. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more oppression. Yes, Lord, hasten the day. Verse 4 even speaks of God with his military title, the Lord of hosts. He is going to put an end to all opposition. He will win the battle for everlasting peace. But notice now verse 5. This verse takes us out of the dreamy future envisioned in Micah's day in the first four verses into the resolution of the faithful in the moment of hostilities. What are God's people to do as they wait for the day of victory to arrive? They must pledge themselves to remain loyal to the Lord of hosts. How do you do that? By letting him fight the battle 
rather than just being like everyone else who follows their own national deity. The people of God in every generation trust in the Lord by remaining faithful to the Lord, walking in the ways of the one true God rather than the ways of the world. In every generation. And my job as a preacher today is to speak to this one, right? In every generation, the people of God are to demonstrate that they do in fact trust in the Lord by living in a very distinct way, in a way that is simply not seen anywhere else. And by doing so, they will serve as the harbingers of the universal peace to come at the end. This is what God has called us to be as people living in the reality of God's kingdom of peace that has arrived in Jesus. We are to point the way forward to God's universal peace that will surely one day arrive. It's what God expected of his people in Micah's day. It's what he expects of of his people in our day. To be faithful to the God of peace is to commit ourselves to be people of peace no matter the external realities of our day. Now, in Micah's day, the expectation for God's people was that they would show their trust in the Lord by doing what is just and what is right, no matter what it costs them. Even if they were taken advantage of by the corrupt leaders of Israel, God's people must not compromise their integrity by doing anything unjust. Similarly, because they trusted in God's sovereign rule, they could not become tainted with political compromise. When King Hezekiah, in spite of his piety and repentance that that stayed God's hand in his day, later made an alliance with Babylon, you can read about it in 2 Kings 20, 12 to 19, and was denounced for this by the prophet Isaiah. So what about us? What about us in our generation? I am concerned that the church of the Lord Jesus not become tainted with the idolatrous ways of the world. The greatest fear I have for the church in our day is the never-ending temptation to compromise with immorality, to lose our integrity, all in the name of preserving our own agenda, We're maintaining our own power, creating our own sense of peace. Brothers and sisters, the Lord of hosts does not need us to defend his kingdom with the weapons of the flesh. Well, what if remaining faithful to God costs us our way of life? What if remaining faithful to God costs us an election. Oh no. What if remaining faithful to God costs us an important piece of legislation? What if remaining faithful to God costs us our churches, our homes, or even our lives? Then so be it. God's promise, as we see in verse 6, is that he will assemble the lame. Look at this. (laughs) He will make, 
the lame his remnant. Do you, can you imagine the picture? You can't even walk. And God says, you will be my mighty army. God can take the weak and the powerless and turn them into, verse 7 says, a strong nation. In verse 10, he tells his people, you're going to go to Babylon. And that's not exactly an anticipation of an exotic vacation. This is the language of exile, of being conquered by another power. And yet he says this, look what he says, there, we saw this, by the way, in Ezekiel, there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. God does not need our weapons of mass destruction to go against the wicked powers of our day. Doesn't need it. He needs people, even the weakest, who will remain faithful to him and wait. Wait for him to bring the peace that he has promised. If you and I in our generation want to be promoters of the peace of God, brothers and sisters, this is how we must do it. We must refuse to compromise with some other God of peace, even if that means that we will in our day end up suffering the devastations of a society that does not know peace. Now, chapter four ends with the prospect of a coming day when Israel's fate would be positive, not negative. When they will no longer be under the thumb of wicked powers, but will thrive again. Micah, like all other of Israel's prophets, said, that day will come. Yes, it will. But chapter five, Micah takes his original audience back to the present distress of 701 B.C. (laughs) Now, he says, right now, the nation of Israel is under siege from the Assyrian king Sennacherib. Again, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 10 will give you the backstory. The present king, here called the judge of Israel, is, as it were, being struck on the cheek How is God's peace going to arrive? And how will it begin to influence the world in a time like this? What is the arrival of your peace, O God? What's it going to look like? And how will it begin to spread? Verse 2 speaks of the arrival of peace. And notice, it's a person. The peace that you're looking for, he says, is a king. He's going to, according to Micah 5, to come forth from Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's a city that would otherwise be completely insignificant, except for the fact that somebody really important was born there. Who was it? No, no, you Christians. (laughs) I tricked you. David. You got to read this like Micah's audience, right? The city of David, Bethlehem. 
This was the birthplace of Israel's greatest king. To bring up David is to bring back an imagination, the way the world could be. Ephrathah, by the way, in case you're always like, what in the world is Ephrathah doing? Ephrathah is apparently the name of the district in which Bethlehem was identified. The point that is being made here is that in contrast to Israel's humiliated King Hezekiah in verse 1, being struck on the cheek, a new king will emerge, a new David, as it were and one who would carry on the promise of the Davidic covenant. (laughs) Now, yeah, we Christians know who this is, of course. You don't get to keep you in suspense. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6 makes it plain that from a Christian perspective, this prophecy was literally fulfilled when Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem. So many of the prophecies we read about in the Bible do not always have what we might call a literal fulfillment, right? So a stump will come from, uh, or a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. You're not looking for a tree, yes? You understand what I'm saying here? So when the prophet says, but you, Bethlehem, All you have to know is there's going to be a Davidic king, a new king like David emerging. But guess what? (laughs) Surprise. This one literally came true. Matthew insists that Jesus is the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and that we should think of him very much like King David. In other words, a ruler. A king who brings peace, who brings justice, who brings, what did we sing? Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression will cease. That's peace. And you're supposed to think of him like that. Just look at verse 4, which promises that he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. It's Clark's middle name, right? <laughs> when you said that, I was like, thinking of Micah chapter 5, verse 4 right here. He's going to shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Look what it says. He will be their peace. Peace is a person. A real king. And verse 5 says, precisely when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places or palaces, we do the Christian gospel a disservice when we think of Jesus as something less than the world rulers of our day. We hear all of the great threats into our world, and they have names. We hear about them. And then we say, but there's Jesus. And we, well, okay. We do the Christian gospel a disservice when we think of Jesus as something less than the great world rulers of our day or any day. Because the promise here is that this new David will deliver his people whom he shepherds from any hostile foe. And he will do it with the strength 
of God himself. Now, as Christians, of course, we must look to the New Testament to see how this all plays out. We have that advantage. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that constitutes the people that God will shepherd and defend. And if you don't believe me, just take a look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, where the church of Jesus Christ is called the Israel of God, the renewed people of God, upon whom peace and mercy have come. If you are a Christian, if you believe in King Jesus, then you are a part of the people of God upon whom God's everlasting peace has already dawned. All true believers in Jesus constitute what Peter calls in 1 Peter 2.9, the holy nation who are left here now to proclaim the excellencies of our strong shepherd who rules and defends us. We do not need to turn to any other political power. You don't. You do not have to bend the knee to anyone. Well, I got to choose between. You don't have to choose when you've got King Jesus. Included in Micah's prophecy is the expectation that when the king shall come, verse 3 says, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. With the arrival of this king, described in verse 4 as one who shall be great to the ends of the earth. Is there any question who this is? (laughs) Israel's long exile will finally come to an end. And every single one of God's people will be gathered into one everlasting kingdom. When we come to the end of Micah chapter 5, we see the prophet gazing farther into the future to see the influence that this renewed people of God who've come to the end of their exile will then begin to have on, well, what did we sing about the day? A weary world. Look at it in verse seven. They are called the remnant of Jacob. Again, here's the suggestion that they will be in the midst of many peoples like dew. From the Lord, like showers on the grass. Hmm. Micah is looking ahead to the, when the Prince of Peace comes and brings an end to Israel's long night of exile, gathers his people together into an everlasting kingdom. Then those people, that's you, that's me, they will be in the midst of the peoples like. Like dew from the Lord. Does that mean anything to you? (laughs) Showers on the grass. In the Bible, this kind of imagery always signifies signs of divine favor, divine benediction. This remnant is said here to bring a heavenly, life-giving refreshment to the whole earth. All right, can I just speak to you candidly here, church? If God leaves us here in this facility, in this community, in this place, if we are being the people of God and being loyal to King Jesus, this community will drive by here and say, we're glad they're here. It's a refreshing place, that church called Crosstown. 
Got some work to do? Got a challenge ahead of us? Are you up for it? This is who you are. This is who God made us to be. But that's not all. Some of you have already read ahead. Because verse 8 says, got another picture for you. The renewed people of God under the leadership of the renewed Davidic king will be not just like do. Look at this. Like a lion (laughs) among the beasts of the forest. Now that's a bit of a different imagery than the refreshing dew on the grass, don't you think? Uh, Lions are dangerous. Lions tear things into pieces. Indeed, verse 9 says, all the enemies of God's people will be cut off. No wonder then that Jesus promised that not even the gates of hell would be able to stand against his church. He must have read Micah. But we must not let that great promise of our Lord incite us to promote his kingdom with the same strategies employed by all other nations. How are we going to be like refreshing dew and at the same time a ferocious lion? You like that? How, is it, how are we going to do this? Read the rest of chapter 5, or verses 10 to 14 anyway, and you will see that the reason God's new people will endure and prevail against all other enemies is precisely because God will see to it that they are not like all of their other enemies. They are not like all the other people, like all the other nations. It says repeatedly, he will cut off, cut off, cut off. What's he going to cut off? All all of our allegiances and political idolatries. He's going to do what theologians will call a work of sanctification in our own hearts. He's going to start stripping away all those idols that you and I are tempted to bow down to day in and day out. That's how the people of God will be like refreshing dew and a ferocious lion. And that's the way that he will bring his peace to the world. We've lost a little bit of our historical reference. But since the arrival of the Prince of Peace in the first century, the world's never been the same. Jesus of Nazareth and those who've remained loyal to him have literally turned the world upside down. And to this day, brothers and sisters, it is still through his people. But his people must be people of peace, a non-anxious presence in the face of an over-anxious world, trying in a million different ways to assert peace in human power and might. We who know the Prince of Peace know a better way. So we must walk in his way if we are eager to see his peace sweep over the world that we live in today. May God give us the grace to see it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, yes, thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the redemption that we find in him. Thank you for the hope that lingers and endures even beyond this life. 
But this life matters. This world you made matters. And you are zealous to see to it that in your world that you created and called good, there is true and everlasting peace. And peace is a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And we who are greatly privileged to be identified as his people must continue to trust in him and follow in his way. Lord, teach us what your ways are. How can we be obedient to you in the realities of our homes and our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our churches when there are so many questions, so many things that puzzle us, so many decisions we have to make that, frankly, it's difficult to know what is right and what is wrong. We rest in the Lord who shepherds his people. We do not have to compromise our integrity. We can walk in humility with you, and you will achieve your purposes. And you will have your vengeance on those who perpetuate injustice. We don't have to be the ones who can right every wrong. Jesus is the one who does it. But we will continue to pray and we'll continue to work as your people, delivered from our sin by your grace, to see the reality of your peace like dew on the grass refresh the world that we live in. Would you give us that privilege? If you do, O oh Lord, of course, we will be the first to say it's all because of Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. Apart from him, we live only in war and hostility and chaos. But in Christ, in Christ, there is a power that no, no one else in this world can ever bring. So grant us today the grace to lay down all the temptations to worship idols and let us devote ourselves wholly to our Lord who has saved us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.